Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for Michael Lerner and a talk that he gave at the San Francisco Integral Yoga Institute. Well, welcome to you all. Here we are. This is a non-linear talk. Five years ago, to this day, I gave a, a talk just like this here. And some of the poems I'll read tonight are, um, are from that talk. They've stayed with me for the last five years. Um, but it's been an eventful five years because uh, shortly after I gave that talk five years ago, I had just recently had a very beloved friend who I had hoped to work with for the rest of my life, uh, who had to move away. And it was just such a, I mean, we're still beloved friends, but it was such a loss for me. Um, and, um, and as you all probably know, it is often in loss that the light emerges. So uh, shortly after her departure, I was up on Whidbey Island, north of Seattle, where Commonweal has some programs. Can you all hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, and um, I was standing on the porch of a Catholic church in the town of Langley at dusk, and I had this experience of just an explosive opening to love. It felt like I, my body couldn't contain the love, that it just went out to the horizon. And it went up, it, it was compassable, it didn't go all the way up into the universe, but it, it, but it went, and it didn't go all the way to the horizon, but there was, it went close to the horizon, and it went up kind of an analogous amount. And so I was experienced this enormous expansion of love. And that experience has modulated, but it stayed with me for the last five years. Um, my whole life has been um, an experiment with love. Um, I, and most of it's been human love, not divine love, human love. Um, but in the Sufi tradition, they say that the friend leads to the friend. The friend with a small f leads to the friend with a big F, meaning in the Sufi tradition, and in many other traditions as well, uh, in the uh, Kabbalistic tradition of Judaism, um, uh, the uh, uh, many traditions uh, in, uh, in uh, the Socratic, Platonic tradition, um, there are many traditions uh, that teach that the experience of human love can in fact lead us to the experience of divine love. So I'll start with a poem that um, I started with um, five years ago. Um, and I'll kind of intersperse poetry with other things. This is called In a Treehouse by Hafiz, the Sufi poet. Light will someday split you open, even if your life is now a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny, is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely bust you wide open 
into an unfettered, blooming new galaxy, even if your mind is now a spoiled mule. A life-giving radiance will come. The friend's grace will come. Oh, look again within yourself, for I know you were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. From a sacred crevice in your body, a bow rises each night and shoots your soul into God. Behold the beautiful drunk singing one. From the lunar vantage point of love, he is conducting the affairs of the whole universe while throwing wild parties in a treehouse on a limb in your heart. It's a very extraordinary poem. Light will someday split you open. Love will surely bust you wide open. A life-giving radiance will come. The friend's grace, that's the friend with a capital F, that's the divine. Look within yourself. You were the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. From a sacred crevice in your body, a bow rises each night and shoots your soul unto God. Behold the beautiful drunk singing one. That's the, you know, the, the divine eros. From the lunar vantage point of love, from the feminine, from the lunar vantage point of love. In other words, you behold the beautiful drunk singing one from the lunar vantage point of love. He is conducting the affairs of the whole universe while throwing wild parties in a treehouse on a limb in your heart. So one of the qualities of love, I mean, we often think that love is just this nice, sweet, gentle thing. You know, we're going to find our soulmate, get married, love each other forever, and live happily ever after, you know. Some version of that, you know. Um, but um, love overthrows the ego. Love overthrows all our plans. When we really uh, fall profoundly in love with each other. In fact, Satchidananda used to say uh, that it's no mistake that we say fall in love. Do you remember him saying that? Yeah, yeah he used to say that. No mistake that we say fall in love. Uh, and... Um, so here's another Hafiz poem. We are people who need to love because love is the soul's life. Love is simply creation's greatest joy. One regret, dear world, that I am determined not to have when I am lying on my deathbed is that I did not kiss you enough. Your love should never be offered to the mouth of a stranger, only to someone who has the valor and daring to cut pieces of their soul off with a knife, then weave them into a blanket to protect you. <laughs> we are people who need to love because love is the soul's life. Love is simply creation's greatest joy. One regret, dear world, that I am determined not to have when I am lying on my deathbed is that I did not kiss you enough. Your love should never be offered to the mouth of a stranger, only to someone who has the valor and daring to cut pieces of their soul off with a knife, then weave them into a blanket to protect you. You see, that's fierce love. That's love that you can't control. 
And that love, very often, and I imagine quite a few of you have experienced this in your life, when you have that experience, you look at your beloved and you really have the experience of the universal being channeled through that person, that if you don't make a category mistake, which is to believe that that person actually is the divine, if you understand that it is through your experience of human love that you are being enabled to see the divine. And for me at least, no matter how many meditation retreats I've done, I have never had the experience of the divine as powerfully through meditation retreats or as in lasting a way as I have through human love. So human love is only one of the spiritual disciplines. There are many uh, traditions that teach other things, that you have to cut it off, that you have to get rid of it, and that's just fine. It's completely, I mean, I understand it. It's a very legitimate approach. But the Sufi approach is different. And the approach of many, and particularly in the esoteric traditions, where, uh, because the esotericists in many of the traditions believe that if you said this openly, people would misunderstand it, they would make category mistakes. Whereas uh, that if you were sufficiently grounded and solid to be able to understand esoteric truth, that you could understand that when we fall in love, that that sense that we've met our soulmate and their sense that somehow we were completely fated to be together um, is in fact offering us a, a window into the divine. And how you handle that Everything depends on them. This is real key. For one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult task of all. Difficult task of all. The work for which all other work is but preparation. It is a high inducement to the individual to ripen, a great claim upon us, something that chooses us and calls us to vast things. So love isn't easy. And love isn't often kind. Love is a, a force, the most difficult task of all, the work for which all other work is but preparation. It is a high inducement to the individual to ripen, a great claim upon us, something that chooses us out. It's not that we choose it. When you meet that person, it's often vastly inconvenient, you know? But somehow... Uh, something happened. Now let's think for a moment. Suppose that what happens is that it's not inconvenient. You, you meet this person, you fall profoundly in love with each other at the height of this enchantment with each other where you can't keep your hands off each other. You decide to get married. You get married. Uh, everybody blesses you. How wonderful that you're so in love. You, uh, if, and I'm going to use a heterosexual relationship here, not because that's the norm in San Francisco, but simply <laughs> as a linguistic trope, you know, just uh, we use male-female here. You get married and you begin to, you, you have a, a couple of children, right? You both have careers, whatever. What happens to that sense that this is your soulmate and that, um, you know, this is fated and that, this is go you're going to be like this forever. What happens to it? It changes. It changes. James Hillman, the great archetypal psychologist, once said, 
who was, you know, many of the great archetypal psychologies, James Hillman is one of the great archetypal psychologists, understand that we're not just one personality. We all have like dozens of subpersonalities within us. And um, psychosynthesis teaches that, Roberto Assagioli's tradition, Hillman, many others. Goethe said that, you know, anybody who says there are only uh, two uh, souls contesting within us uh, underestimates the number by a great deal. So we all have all these different things. So Hillman once said that uh, each of us is like a boarding house. And there are some denizens of the boarding house who come out during the day and play by the rules. There are some who come out only at night and play by very different rules. And there are some who never come out of their rooms at all. So when you marry somebody or get together with somebody, what happens? You bring two boarding houses together. And what's typically happened is that when you fell in love with each other, each of you was presenting the dimension of the boarding house that you hoped you would present and they hoped they would present. But over time, you begin to meet the other denizens of the boarding house. <laughs> and over time, you discover the specific ways in which you drive each other completely crazy. <laughs> I've been married for 35 years. I love my wife, and we have a, a wonderful uh, marriage. But we also both know the ways in which we drive each other crazy. And my experience is that in a long-term uh, marriage, that in many ways the best thing you can hope for is to be deeply friends. Because at some point the sex is going to change, you know? The beauty or the physical stuff is going to change. So what is it that holds a 35-year relationship together? And notice that when I say friendship, there's probably a resonance for you that say, well, is that really true? Don't they continue to really love each other? And um, what that reflects is the American tradition of privileging romantic love over friendship. Because if you go back in history, the truth of the matter is that friendship was more prized than romantic love. Mm -hmm. Romantic love is very volatile. And by its very nature, that volatility, it's going to change. Uh, you, you demand things of each other in romantic love. With a friend, it's very different. You simply have a feeling that can continue to deepen, but with a, a beloved friend, there's a stability to it that keeps deepening. And in many traditions, uh, like in, in Greek, in ancient Greek, uh, the word for friend and lover were the same word. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And in, um, in many cultures around the world, that, uh, that prioritization of friendship still remains. In Germany, for example, uh, friends are chosen with great care, and it's considered a privilege and an honor. In China, in Asian cultures, uh, it's considered a very deep pleasure. Americans will describe many people as their friends. But in Germany, in China, in Asia, in Islam, Islam, again, uh, you find this deep sense of friendship. So when I say that a 35-year marriage, in some terms at, at best, becomes a friendship, that's not to denigrate what happens. There is a wearing away of the other thing. There's a beautiful poem 
that comes now, actually. I didn't expect it to come now, but that's the beauty of this. By Adrian Rich, called 21, From 21 Love Poems. Man and woman are like the earth that brings forth flowers in summer and love, but underneath is rock, older than flowers, older than ferns, older than foraminiferae, older than plasm altogether, is the soul underneath. And when, through all the wild chaos of love, slowly a gem forms in the ancient once more molten rocks of two human hearts, two ancient rocks, a man's heart and a woman's, that is the crystal of peace, the slow, hard jewel of trust, the sapphire of fidelity, the gem of mutual peace emerging from the wild chaos of love. Isn't that beautiful? Mm-hmm. So that sense that what emerges is not a continuation of the wild chaos of love. And it doesn't just emerge smoothly and easily. It emerges through this agony of trying to live with another human being over a long period of time, which will try you in every sense. And you have to figure out what it is within each of you that wants to stay. I mean, when you think about the fact, which you all know, that half of American marriages end in divorce, but then ask yourself how many marriages don't end in divorce but are just barely holding on or or are just a kind of a separate piece, you know? So what happens to love? It finds other things. So it may be a pet. You know, I mean, you know, some of you who have pets know how profound the love of a dog or a cat can be. You know, my wife, Cheryl, calls her dog Raffi a a person in a dog suit. And, you know, and she adores Raffi. And sometimes I tease her that she likes Raffi more than she likes me. And she says, no, 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 no. But I think, you know, (laughs) I mean, he's certainly a lot less trouble and a lot easier to love. I mean, yeah. Um, So a pet or or a a so-called hobby or a passion, you know. My passion is knowledge. My passion is reading, you know. Do some of you know Enneagram? Mm -hmm. A couple. I'm an Enneagram 5. The Enneagram 5 wants his idea of a good time as a date with knowledge, you know. Uh, just to be able to sit at the end of a work day, sit down with a book or the newspaper or whatever. I just love knowledge, you know. And um, Enneagram actually is, is interesting to mention. It's for those of you who don't know it, it's a, um, it's a very extraordinary uh, archetypal psychology Uh, It's kind of like, some of you probably know the Myers-Briggs Jungian uh, system for evaluating people. It's a lot like Myers-Briggs. And there are nine points around the circle of the Enneagram uh, that uh, the perfectionist, uh, the helper, the achiever, the tragic romantic, the observer, which is the five, the loyalist, um, the enthusiast, the iconoclast, and the peacemaker. So they go around the circle. And three of those... Uh, the um, uh, the iconoclast, the peacemaker, and the perfectionist, the three at the top, are all gut-based. And then the helper, the achiever, and the um, t- 
tragic romantic are all heart-based. And then the uh, observer, the loyalist, and the enthusiast are all mind-based. So there are three that are gut-based, three that are heart-based, and three that are mind-based. And this was brought to the West by the spiritual teacher Gurdjieff, and then um, um, a uh, extraordinary man in uh, Chile named Oscar Chazo um, uh, discovered that um, uh, that he made it into a personality system. And Claudio Naranjo, a Chilean psychiatrist, brought it to Berkeley. And, st and the people that, if you know the system, Helen Palmer and many others studied with him. It was supposed to be secret, actually, for a long time. But then people broke the secrecy. And it's very interesting that it was supposed to be secret because I think there was a reason that it was secret because not everybody benefits from Enneagram. Uh, it, it's, um, some, many people feel that they're being put in a box by any system like that. Whereas, in fact, it is a, uh, a system of pointing to how each of us works and the nine points are each different. They each have their fault, but they each are a different facet of the divine. So these are the nine faces of the divine, and each one has a characteristic fault. So the faults, it's the seven deadly sins of Catholicism plus two that Catholicism didn't think about. Um, and it's also, uh, it tracks almost perfectly with the Kabbalistic tree of life, um, it tracks uh, with uh, Dante's uh, Inferno. And most fascinating to me, it tracks on the lands that Odysseus visited on his way home from Troy in the same order of the Enneagram. So what this, and it tracks quite well with the um, psychiatric diagnostic categories, not perfectly. It, so for, for example, it doesn't have the three, which is the achiever in the psychiatric literature, but that's because America is a three culture. And so we consider it normal for people to spend all their time trying desperately to achieve. We don't consider that pathological, but you know, in other systems it could be seen, you know, I mean, you know, being preoccupied with status and all that stuff is, is it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It has its own face of the divine, but um, that's why it's missing there. So the reason I bring up Enneagram, aside from the fact that it's fun and interesting, and I, I think some of you might like it, is that each point on the Enneagram has a different way of experiencing love. That's the point here. So if you're a perfectionist, you will experience love in one way. If you are a helper, uh, you will experience love in another, achiever, so on and so forth. And um, so the tragic romantic, for, for example, uh, always feels that, um, and by the way, many creative artists are tragic romantics. You know, it's a very fruitful, you know, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, all kinds of people like that, that ability to move between dark and light. And, you know, Ecclesiastes was probably, you know, an Enneagram four. And so uh, that... Um, but the four always believes that they will never find, they will somehow never get to, you know, to the love that they need, you know. The five um, leads with the mind, that's me, and uh, in the face of a demand for love, may often withdraw, you know, pulls back, you know, and, and, and only picks people to love with enormous care, you know. So each one, has their own way of being in relationship to love. So you have the cultural overlays, the different 
ways cultures express friendship. And then you have, the, whether you use Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or whatever system you want to use, the point is that we each have these different ways of expressing love. Here's Rilke. Boy, Rilke is just incredible. From the Book of Hours. God talks to each of us as he creates us, then walks with us silently out of night. But the words spoken to us before we start, those cloudy words are these, sent forth by your senses, go to the edge of your desire, back behind the things, grow as fire, so that their shadows lengthened will always and completely cover me. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Only press on. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself be cut off from me. Nearby is that country known as life. You will recognize it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. God talks to each of us as he creates us, then walks with us silently out of night. But the words spoken to us before we start, those cloudy words are these, sent forth by your senses. Go to the edge of your desire. Back behind the things, grow as fire, so that their shadows lengthened will always and completely cover me. So you can't see God. He's covered by your going to the edge of your senses and by desire so that he's completely covered. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, only press on. And then this sentence, no feeling is final. That's so true. No feeling is final, including any manifestation of love that you may be experiencing. It isn't final. It will keep changing. Only press on, no feeling is final. Don't let yourself be cut off from me. Nearby, the place where you're going, nearby is that country known as life. You will recognize it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. Isn't that beautiful? Brother David Steindelraust, uh, who loves Rilke. How many of you know Brother David? Quite a few. If you go to the Commonweal website and go to the new school and type in Brother David Steindelrast, um, I did a spiritual biography of Brother David that's in, I think, three or four um, hour-and-a-half segments. And he is an extraordinary uh, Catholic monk who took Catholicism and very much the way Gurudev did with Integral Yoga. He blew it up to encompass all traditions. That's what he did, just the way Gurudev did that way. You know, in other words, there are Hindus that are very, um, as we all know, uh, fundamentalist in different ways. And one of Swami Satchidananda's great gifts was that he, uh, his whole teaching was that there was one truth and many paths. And if you went to his ashram in Virginia, the Light of Truth Universal Shrine had altars for every religion and then for all religions, you know, other religions known and unknown, and for secular people as well. So his point was, he was a non-dualist, and uh, non-dualism is for me um, 
the wisdom about spiritual life. Non-dualism basically says that everything is part of the divine, that the beauty and the terror, that the ugliness and everything else, that it's all part of the divine. And um, so um, we just try to bring the light into it where we can. Here's another Rilke poem. I love this one. She who reconciles the ill-matched threads of her life and weaves them gratefully into a single cloth. It's she who drives the loudmouths from the hall and clears it for a different celebration where the one guest is you. In the softness of evening, it's you she receives. You are the partner of her loneliness, the unspeaking center of her monologues. With each disclosure, you encompass more and she stretches beyond what limits her to hold you. Isn't that beautiful? She who reconciles the ill-matched threads of her life and weaves them gratefully into a single cloth, it's she who drives the loudmouths from the hall and clears it for a different celebration where the one guest is you. In the softness of evening, it's you she receives. You are the partner of her loneliness, the unspeaking center of her monologues. With each disclosure, you encompass more, and she stretches beyond what limits her to hold you. Just so beautiful. You're listening to a TNS talk with Michael Lerner at the San Francisco Integral Yoga Institute. Oh, I, I, I didn't even tell you. I got off on a riff on Brother David. I didn't even tell you what he said, I don't think. He said that there are many subjects where only poetry can carry the freight. So that's my experience when we talk about love. I mean, we can talk discursively about love, but it doesn't reach you in the same way. But if I read you these great love poems, it can carry the freight, you know. And from my point of view, there are two things that carry the freight in general. One is sacred texts, and the other is poetry, you know. And of course, very often the sacred texts were in poetry, so. My beloved friend Yanni Chapman is here tonight. She's sitting right over here. Would you raise your hand? Yanni is a longtime Inigo Yoga person. Uh, she is a renowned uh, nationally and internationally yoga teacher. She is a yoga teacher and massage person on the Commonweal Cancer Help Program. We've done close to 195 week-long retreats together. She missed a few to go to nursing school. Um, and Yanni, among other things, um, uh, she, uh, Yanni's kind of a, a, a shamanic force. Um, she has, uh, I like to say, the crazy wisdom of shaman. Um, but she is a complete manifestation of love. Complete manifestation of love. So I bow to you. Yeah, yeah. So on the Cancer Help Program, each, you know, we've done 195 retreats uh, over 31 years based in Edigo Yoga. It's an integral yoga retreat uh, created. It's like Dean Ornish's heart program. Yanni also worked with Dean. 
Dean was my cardiologist, is my cardiologist, and Dean is the one who discovered that a yoga-based program could actually reverse coronary artery disease. Um, and Dean helped inspire me to start the Cancer Help Program. Um, and um, Swamiji actually gave um, one of the first scholarships for the Cancer Help Program. I have the signed letter from him for, mm. for it, a check from Swamiji for $1,080, 1080. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. The thing about integral yoga, you know, there are many systems that work, but integral yoga is a real clean operating system. You know, it's a real clean operating system. It tells you what you need to know. It's not one of these huge manuals that you have to go on forever. It's like a, a thin manual, at least at the introductory level. You know, you can get the basics. My friend Elizabeth here just did the, the training. And I did it, uh, I guess, 35 years ago and um, taught here for quite a number of years. So this is one that comes up on the evening and death and dying on the Cancer Help Program. It's called In Blackwater Woods. This is a fragment of the, of the poem by Mary Oliver. Many of you know this. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Makes me cry. I'll tell you an interesting story. I was in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, as I mentioned to you, visiting a place called the Fetzer Institute, which was created by uh, a multi-multi-millionaire named John Fetzer, who uh, really wanted to explore um, uh, esoteric, the esoteric world and had a vision that, um, that spirit and science would one day come together. And so many people have had that vision. But he actually uh, created an institute that works on that. And, um, and he was versed in many, many of the spiritual traditions of the... He was born in 1901, versed in many of the spiritual traditions. But the, the thing that changed his life uh, more than anything else was when he was given um, a copy of A Course in Miracles. How many people have heard of The Course in Miracles? Yeah, quite a few. So A Course in Miracles is um, a channeled book that came to uh, a woman in New York um, who was a psychologist uh, living a very negative life, and she and her colleague were fighting with each other all the time. And they, they thought, we, we've got to stop this. We've got to find another way. And then this automatic writing began coming to her, and so she would take it down in shorthand and dictate it to him. And this extraordinary uh, book called A Course in Miracles, which some people like and some people don't. It's like everything else. But it's a pretty amazing book. Um, 
And I'm just going to read you, um, because this is what John Fetzer believed. Uh, he said, A Course in Miracles offers us a path of awakening. This is from it. Like all paths, the Course suggests that our usual perceptions, awareness, and sense of identity are clouded and distorted. It therefore offers us a mean of correcting, means of correcting these distortions so we may see ourselves in the world more clearly. This transformation of perception is what the Course means by a miracle. Okay? It's the transformation of perception that the Course means by a miracle. So I'll just read you a couple of the, the opening segments. This Course was sent to open up the path of light to us and teach us step by step how to return to the eternal self we thought we lost. The goal of the curriculum, regardless of the teacher you choose, is know thyself. This is a course in mind training. To learn this course requires willingness to question every value that you hold. The course does not aim at teaching the meaning of love, for that is beyond what can be taught. It does aim, however, at removing the blocks to the awareness of love's presence, which is your natural inheritance. Your goal is to find out who you are. Miracles are natural. When they do not occur, something has gone wrong. Miracles are merely the translation of denial into truth. Miracles occur naturally as expressions of love. The real miracle is the love that inspires them. In this sense, everything that comes from love is a miracle. The miracle comes quietly into the mind that stops an instant and is still. The miracle of life is ageless, born in time, but nourished in eternity. So if you don't know The Course in Miracles, this is a little introduction that was edited by Francis Vaughn and Roger Walsh. But it's, 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 very, it's a very interesting book to look at. It, it inspired an extraordinary man named Jerry Jampolsky, uh, who wrote a wonderful book called Love is Letting Go of Fear. And uh, it completely changed his life. He was a psychiatrist who was doing a lot of drinking. He was overweight. He was depressed. And he was given The Course in Miracles. It totally changed his life. And he started the Centers for Attitudinal Healing. At the same time, I started Commonweal. And um, we actually didn't meet each other for about 39 years. And then we met two years ago. And he's in his 90s and almost entirely blind. And he came out to Commonweal with his wonderful wife, Diane Sercioni Jampolsky. And um, we were talking about his work and my work. And I said to him, you know, Jerry, I know that it's not a good idea for me to advise people when they come to me. But somehow I can't help it. And he sat on my couch, big man, white hair, very thoughtful. And he said, Michael, it took me a long time to understand that I could not possibly know what is best for another human being. It took me a long time to understand that I could not possibly know what is best for another human being.
I met Swamiji 35 years ago. I was introduced by a physician at Satchinananda Ashram named Amrita McClanahan, Sandra McClanahan. And Sandra and I uh, met at a workshop at Terrytown Conference Center in New York. My first marriage had just ended. And I fell in love with her. And we went down. Uh, she was at Satchidananda Ashram, and she brought me down to meet Satchidananda. And um, so at that time, the ashram was in its early phases, and, and we met Satchidananda in an air-conditioned uh, mobile home. Uh, at, alongside a bunch of other mobile homes that where people were living. And we told him that we'd fallen in love with each other. And he looked at us and he said, I want you to write down everything you love about the other person. <laughs> so Amrita wanted me to move to uh, the ashram. I wanted her to move to Commonweal. And neither of us were both stubborn people, and neither of us would move. So we ended up being lifelong friends. But integral yoga has stayed in my heart for over 35 years. And not integral yoga alone, but integral yoga as the practice through which I came to understand the traditions that have really touched me. My mother is Christian. My father is Jewish. So I was raised, uh, as many people at that time were, in an agnostic home. Um, this was before, this was a time when, you know, um, uh, social democracy and communism and uh, efforts to really do something about the human condition were taking priority. People actually cared about working people then. In fact, I wonder where we're better off, whether we're better off in a period where people cared about working people or when people care about being spiritual. I really want to know that. Because for my money, I'd rather be around people who care about working people than people who spend their time worrying about being spiritual. Just for what it's worth. You know, I, I feel that uh, the real spirituality uh, comes from what you actually do in the world. You know, by their fruit shall you know them. I mean, commonly, we do, we do stuff. We don't sit around being spiritual. In fact, we don't think of ourselves or call ourselves a spiritual community. We're not. We're a group of ordinary people who get together to do work of service in health and healing, education, the arts, environment, and justice. You know, we, we have reduced the youth prison population of California by 90% over the last, you know, 40 years. We changed the laws governing California's oceans. We co-led the effort to uh, do the first treaty to ban the 12 most toxic chemicals in the world. To me, those are spiritual pieces of work. And so I trust that. And, and, and the nice thing about work like that is that it, you can believe anything you want, you know? You can have whatever spiritual, religious, philosophical, or whatever thing it is. And I'm not saying this is the only way to be in this world, but just to be straight out about who you're looking at, you're looking at somebody who um, uh, prefers, actively prefers work that actually serves people, you know. And Satchitananda always said, a life of dedication is the path to inner peace, you know. And I absolutely, completely believe that. 
You know, that it is when you give up uh, on uh, trying to better yourself or do something else like that and just try to be of service, you know. Get out of the way. Try to be of service. So anyway, uh, we started the Cancer Help Program based on Integral Yoga 31 years ago. We've done, as I said, 195 retreats. And the Cancer Help Program is completely based on the healing power of love. I mean, completely based on it. And it's not that we talk about the healing power of love. It is that if you take eight people with cancer and spend a week with them in an intensive, quiet retreat center doing yoga, meditation, massage, imagery, uh, art therapy. Uh, I lead conversations on choices in healing, uh, conventional therapies, integrative therapies, pain and suffering, death and dying. Um, we have a music night. We do poetry and so on and so forth. Guess what happens? People fall in love with each other. They come to love each other. And the bonds that are created in this instant village, as my colleague Francis Weller puts it, um, are often deeper than the bonds people have had elsewhere in their lives. You know? And so very often, not 100% of the time, but most of the time, people never forget their week in the Cancer Help Program. And it changes people's lives to the end of their lives. You know? In one week, you know? That's the healing power of love. That is the healing power of love. I had a heart attack at 59, 25 years ago. And um, right after my heart attack, uh, Yanni came over to do a massage on me. And I was lying on the floor in my bedroom. And Yanni put her hand on my heart. And she said, this is so Yanni. She said, <laughs> beloved heart, she said, you've taken care of Michael for 59 years. And now it's Michael's turn to take care of you. You know, so um, I went through a period of anxiety after my heart attack, which is very, very common. Many people do. And, but I knew, because I'd had anxiety before, that anxiety resolves if you discover what it is that underlies the anxiety. And the search is for what underlies the anxiety. So I medicated myself as little as possible, so I didn't want to drug myself out because I was in the search and after about a month of this, I was exhausted by it. I was back in my study one day, just exhausted, and I heard this little voice. And I said, oh, is that what you want? I said, I can do that. And what the voice told me was to completely surrender myself to the living God, to the divine force, whatever language you want to use. You know, living God is anthropomorphic or divine force. But that's what it said. As soon as I accepted that, the anxiety just drained away. Now, I'd been trying to do that for the last 30 years. You know, it wasn't. But it was calling on me to a deeper level of surrender. So what is that surrender to the divine? It is the healing power of love. You see? Just like the Cancer Health Program is the healing power of love. Just like Amrita McClanahan led me to integral yoga, the friend led to the friend, right? So each of these are examples of the healing power of love in our life and work. So here's how I look at life. Um, we're each given, this is just physical reality, we're each given hearts, minds, and bodies. That's what we're given. Hearts, heads, and hands. 
and we're given these to do what we choose with. So the heart, at the highest level, expresses love. The mind, or the head, expresses wisdom. And uh, the service of the body is an expression of your will, that it's, it's not enough to, to love and be wise. You have to actually do something with it. Otherwise, it's meaningless. It's just going on in your head, you know? So what fascinates me is how many traditions you find that in. So at Commonweal, if you say love, wisdom, and will, and you said those were your values, that's too highfalutin. But what we say at Commonweal is that we have three values that people can try to live by. One is kindness. We just try to be kind to each other. People love, it's very complicated. But kindness, people have some sense of what kindness actually means. We all do. Another is skillfulness, you know? You could call it pragmatic wisdom, but just being skillful in how you live your life. And the third is dedication, you know, to, that you're dedicated to the work. So what we ask of people who work at Commonweal, we're not a spiritual community, but we ask that they be basically kind to each other, that they be skillful in their work and how they interact with each other, and they be dedicated to the work. So what's interesting, the heart, the head, and the hands, is that if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, what are the three yogas of the Bhagavad Gita? You should know this. <laughs> I'm not going to put you on the spot. So it's bhakti yoga, the yoga of the heart, jnana yoga, the yoga of wisdom, and karma yoga, right? And those three yogas, the, the Gita says, which is the greatest of those three? It's the yoga of love. You know, they're all ways to the divine. But of those three, the greatest is the yoga of love. It says that yana yoga, the yoga of wisdom, is a complex and difficult path, mm -hmm. you know? Easy to get lost on that path. Uh, and, you know, karma yoga, yeah, good works, but uh, good works, as I said, I trust good works. But what I really trust is the yoga of love. Now, but the yoga of love, love without wisdom is blind, and wisdom without love is cold. Uh, so the, the goal, as Jack Cornfield says in one of his books, is to have a wise heart, you know, that it's centered in the heart, but that there is a wisdom that's come into the heart so that the love is not blind. And then that wise heart necessarily pushes you out into service in the world. My colleague, Rachel Naomi Remond, do you, some of you know her work? A few? She's an amazing woman. She started the Cancer Help Program with me. And she said something that I've never forgotten. She said she thought that perhaps the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. Now, if you think about that, sub, that, that formulation, the purpose is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better, right? It is that same triad. It has purpose, which is dedication, is to grow in wisdom, the mind, and to learn to love better, the heart. So again and again, these three things come up. And so to me, they are trustworthy in a way because it's built physiologically into us. You don't have to believe in any religious system. It's just kind of built into who we are. So is love just a human phenomenon? Do animals love? Surely they do. Anybody who's been around a dog knows a dog is just pure love, you know, a lot of the time. Um, but is love a force in the universe? 
That's a really interesting question. Um, is the universe alive and meaningful or random and without meaning? And does love connect us to a living universe? Now, we can't answer that question definitively, but I think that it is a symptom of a pathologically materialist view of the world that we don't hold ourselves open to the view that the universe is a living, uh, a living force and that it is held together by the power of love. And in fact, that is a view that is, has been held by many philosophers and many deep thinkers. Um, and um, so the question is, if you have a choice between believing that the universe is random and dead and entirely material, and believing that the universe is alive and that the power of love... I mean, just think about it. How did the universe that we know start? It started with a big bang. And out of that bang, the whole manifestation took place, right? And what did the universe create? It created life on Earth, and astronomers increasingly believe that there's very likely life on other planets. And what do meteors carry around? They carry around like DNA codes that when they drop into a fertile planet, they can, I mean, what does that sound like to you, right? Yeah. It sounds like, in, in, in fact, the, the word for it is, uh, I forget, it's something like the spermatogenic theory of uh, the transmission of life. But if the universe is a living entity, and so there's a really interesting scientific principle called the anthropic principle. Does anybody know the anthropic principle? Look up the anthropic principle, because the anthropic principle asks, why is the universe designed so that if it had been just a degree or a millith thing off one way or the other, it couldn't have supported life? So to a lot of scientists, it looks like the universe was designed to create life. Well, what is love that starts with a bang, that spreads this whole thing out, that creates a thing where little spermatoid, you know, things drop into fertile planets and life starts to bloom? What does that sound like, you know? And is it purely an accident that the esoteric traditions, uh, you know, the Kabbalah and everything else, use the imagery of erotic love? You know, think of the Song of Solomon, you know? You know, the Kabbalistic tradition. So, you know, uh, the, the erotic, you know, we think of the erotic as exclusively sexual, but you can have sex without eros, and you can also have eros without sex. You can have an erotic relationship with another human being without it being sexual, you know? And in fact, it has a better chance of lasting, you know, if it, you know, if it isn't. You're listening to a TNS talk with Michael Lerner at the San Francisco Integral Yoga Institute. So, um, so this question um, of whether love is exclusively human, well, we know animals love. We know that plants do better when they are loved and cared for. Um, you know, love has an incredible power. So the question is, is the universe actually simply random physical accident, or is it alive? 
And I can't answer that question, but there is a question, which way do you choose to hold it? Because there's nothing that weighs that hypothesis one way or the other. It's not that the view that it's material and dead is somehow superior to the view that it's alive. In fact, the view that it's dead can't explain the anthropic principle. And that's why Stephen Hawking and others created the concept of the multiverse, because their answer to the anthropic principle is the reason that our universe exists is that it's just one of millions of universes that have been created, but this is the only one or one of a few that supports life, so it's the only one we see, right? But to me, that doesn't meet Occam's razor. The, you know, it's not the simplest explanation. For one, we can't see all the other universes, so it's a pure hypothesis that it's a multiverse. And the only universe we can see is organized by the anthropic principle, which means that it seems to be designed to hold life. So I just offer this to you not as a conclusion, but as a question for you. You know, William James, the great American psychologist, once said that if free will exists, his first choice was to believe in free will, you know? So it's the same thing. What, what version of reality, given a choice, do you choose to want to hang out with? So I'm going to read a few more little things here and then take some questions. These are shorter. These aren't poems, but these are kind of a nice... Uh, what do I have? A few. I'll stop when I get bored, or when you get bored. Here's Lao Tzu. Being deeply loved by someone gives you strength, while loving someone deeply gives you courage. Here's Eli Wiesel, and this is beautiful. Friendship marks a life even more deeply than love. Love risks degenerating into obsession. Friendship is never anything but sharing. Here's William Shakespeare. A friend is one that knows you as you are, understands where you have been, accepts what you have become, and still gently allows you to grow. Isn't that beautiful? Can you read that one again? Yeah. A friend is one that knows you as you are, understands where you have been, accepts what you have become, and still gently allows you to grow. Thanks for asking. Here's the Dalai Lama. Love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. It reminds me of a beautiful line from Aurobindo, the great Indian mystic, who had an, a yoga extremely similar to Satchidananda's, also called integral yoga. Yeah. Uh, he was an amazing man. Uh, he said, if there is a future it must wear a crown of feminine design. If there is a future, it must wear a crown of feminine design. I completely believe that. I mean, if we don't create a crown of feminine design for the future, it's not going to be one that we want to have anything to do with. Here's Bob Marley. The truth is, everyone is going to hurt you. You just got to find the ones worth suffering for. <laughs> Here's John O'Donohue, and this is beautiful. One of the deepest longings of the human soul is to be seen. You know, that's what people who love each other do for each other. 
they see each other. Rachel Remen, actually, no, it was Jennifer Stoll, another beloved companion on the Cancer Help Program, was talking about the staff of the Cancer Help Program, which many of whom have been together for over 20 years. Yanni's been with us for 20? 30 years. 30 years, yeah, of the 31. Um, and Jennifer said, in the Cancer Help Program, the staff has seen each other into being. Isn't that a beautiful line? That if you are with a group of people that you really care about over a long period of time, you see each other, or just one person, you see each other into being. Here's Michael on dodging. We all have an old knot in the heart we wish to untie. And here's Carson McCullers, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. I am not meant to be alone and without you who understands. I am not meant to be alone and without you who understands. Here's Susan Sontag. My library is an archive of longings. Here's Stephanie Lawrence. Just because I'm not forever by your side doesn't mean that's not precisely where I want to be. This is T.H. White, the once and future king. This is so beautiful. She hardly ever thought of him. He had worn a place for himself in some corner of her heart as a seashell, always boring against the rock, might do. The making of the place had been her pain, but now the shell was safely in the rock. It was lodged and ground no longer. Isn't that beautiful? <clears throat> Here's Julianne Davidow. Erotic longing is really a longing to merge with something greater than oneself. For every kind of love is a force that holds the promise of taking us beyond the limitations of our individual lives. And George Eliot. It seems to me we can never give up longing and wishing while we are still alive. There are certain things we feel to be beautiful and good and we must hunger for them. Here's a famous one from the Buddha. You can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserves your love and affection. You know, it's fascinating how many people have trouble loving themselves. I mean, it's really a fascinating thing. Michael, do you think that's a Western phenomenon? No, I don't. I think that it's... Um, you know, in addition to the Cancer Help Program, we do these, uh, these three-day retreats for Bay Area young survivors of cancer. Um, and these are uh, typically uh, women, young women with metastatic cancer. And we get biographies from everybody who comes on the Cancer Help Program. And this isn't just my theory. If you there's actually, a, Yanni might know the word for it, but there's a a language, a medical language about adverse events, ACEs, are they called? Yes. Uh, uh, what is adverse it? Childhood adverse childhood events. Adverse childhood, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the more adverse childhood events you have, mm -hmm. the more likely you are to get sick. And I just see it again and again in the Cancer Help Program that um, a lot of the younger women, especially because women are the people who come on the Cancer Help Program mostly, have just had terrible adverse childhood of, of abuse or, you know, whatever it was. 
And they show up at age 30, 35, 40 with um, serious cancers. Mm. And so, um, and I'm so glad you asked that because what is the best antidote to adverse childhood events that lead you to have low self-esteem, which means you can't love yourself? And the answer is the healing power of love. And that's part of why Commonweal is so transformative, because people experience, they create this force field with each other and with the staff where work that you cannot do alone as effectively is possible in this force field. Mm. So many psychotherapists who send people to Commonweal will say, you know, they can make years of progress in a week because this force field has been created. And I don't want to say Commonweal is the only place this happens. It happens lots of places. It's simple, but it's not easy. And it requires great skill. So, in other words, the, the criteria for creating it are not impossible to name. But what is really the deal is who the human beings are who are on staff. So Shanti Norris, who directed Smith Center for Healing and the Arts in Washington, D.C. for 21 years and came on the Cancer Health Program because it's one of the three other centers that have done our work for at least 20 years. And she said that before she came on the Cancer Health Program, she wanted to learn how to do it. She thought, you know, there was this kind of formula and you plug in people into these positions and it all unfolded. And she understood once she'd been there that it was the people that it was the people, the actual people on the staff, and the force field that they co-created with the participants that made it powerful. This is Ian Pierce. For the first time, she did want more. She did not know what she wanted, knew that it was dangerous, and that she should rest content with what she had, but she knew an emptiness deep inside her which began to ache. So that ache, if you really love someone and you can't be with them, you often carry that ache for a long, long period of time. It, It may be possible to get beyond the ache, but in order to get beyond the ache, you have to sacrifice your possessiveness. You have to give up what it was that you wanted. And then you can love without the ache because the ache is wanting to possess the beloved. That's my view, you know. Take it for what it's worth. What? Can you say that again? If you love someone deeply, And you can't be with them. for what? Because so often love is inconvenient. It just is. And you can't be with them. Then very often what happens is that, that you, you, you have an ache. Just like she was, to, you know, she knew an emptiness deep inside her which began to ache. So that ache can be with you for a very long time. And you don't necessarily want the ache to go away because you don't want your love of the beloved to go away, Right? Uh, but um, uh, but if you come to the place where you can sacrifice what it was that you wanted, that you can say, you know what, this is how life is supposed to be, you know, for whatever reason, then that ache can disappear. It's like what happened with me with my anxiety. 
when I realized that I was just being asked to surrender to the divine will, not my will, but thy will, you know? And so in the same way, it's the same thing, actually. It's not my will that I want to be with this person, but thy will, you know? And, uh, you know, in archetypal psychology, uh, where uh, the great myth, which James Hillman and others talk about, is that Eros, who's a masculine figure, uh, shoots his arrow and wounds Psyche, which is the soul. And Psyche begins to suffer. And Eros suffers with her. And so they suffer together, the ache, uh, until uh, the uh, alchemical process of putrefaction and you know, transformation takes place, where they both emerge transformed. Uh, you know, uh, without the need for the torture to continue. And Jung was very clear, and so was uh, uh, so is uh, the Yoga Sutras. I mean, if you look at the Yoga Sutras, my favorite sutras, the, the, my favorite sutra in the Yoga Sutras is, uh, and there are different translations, but my translation is, the acceptance of our suffering as an aid to purification the study of great wisdom teachings, and complete surrender to the divine force within each of us. These three things are yoga in practice, not asanas, not breathing, not all those things, but the acceptance of our suffering as an aid to the growth of consciousness. This is what Jung said, that consciousness only grows through suffering. Mm -hmm. And so love presents us with, which is the most powerful force in our life, presents us with this enormous opportunity to suffer. Just this enormous opportunity to ache, to suffer. And guess what? If we actually get together, if we actually get to possess each other, we'll suffer too, because what will happen is that we'll realize that we each have a boarding house that we brought together, and we'll suffer as the purity of the idealized love begins to uh, shatter, you know, with the passage of time. So the skillful relationship to love and the way in which human love leads us to whatever we, you don't have to call it divine, but just into the mystery. A couple more. Here's a quote from Rudolf Steiner, the great anthroposophical mystic, extraordinary man. Love is for the world what the sun is for outer life. No soul could live if love departed from the world. It is the moral sun of the world. To spread love over the earth to the greatest degree possible, to promote love, that alone is wisdom. When we practice love, cultivate love, creative forces pour into the world. Besides love, listen to this, there are two other powers in the world, might and wisdom, right? Love, wisdom, and will. Besides love, there are two other forces in the world, might and wisdom. God is uttermost love, pure love, not supreme wisdom, not supreme might. Love is the foundation of whatever is creative. Progress is obtained through wisdom and strength. So love is the source of creativity, but then when we want to put it into the world, we need skill, we need wisdom, we need dedication, we need strength. I'd like to close with a few moments of silence together, if we could.
peace, peace. We have time for about eight minutes of questions. I have my, I got up at 3 a.m. in Kalamazoo and I have to drive down to a wedding uh, two hours south of here tonight. So, uh, so uh, talk about love uh, to a wedding. So, but a couple of questions. Yes, right back there in the back. Can you um, say something about Maya? Maya, can I say something about Maya? Yeah, I'm into Maya today. Let me think about that and come back to it, okay? I'm, I will hold that. I, I, I don't want to... I'm allergic to saying things that I haven't thought about, and I haven't thought about that in this context, but maybe it'll come to me. Yeah. So um, I wanted to go back to what you started with about that character mistake in when we're in the throes of romantic... Categori category mistake. Category mistake. Not character, category yeah, mistake. Category yeah, category mistake. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. we um, are in the throes of romantic love. And do you feel like that's as common with the other kinds of love? For example, parent-child love? Oh, that's a great question. So is category errors as common with parent-child love? Yes. Um, I actually think that a mother's love for her child is probably the most powerful human love, is my guess. And um, I think that it is entirely possible to make a category mistake, but I'm not even sure I'd call it a mistake. I think that a mother looking mm -hmm. at her child and a child looking at the mother, that, that the universal force is simply present. Yes. And so that's a place where... It doesn't feel like a mistake then. But imagine what happens to that mother's love uh, if, as a teenager or whatever, the child begins to hate the mother, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, you know, how sharper than a serpent's tooth is an ungrateful child? I mean, it can just tear you apart. So it, the similarity, I mean, obviously, most mothers try to say, well, she's going through a teenage thing. But... People end up estranged, so I think that um, I think that the vicissitudes of mother-child love are probably up there with the vicissitudes of of pair uh, love. But I don't know that it could be it could be that mother-child love is so powerful and and uh, you know Jung has a wonderful wonderful passage which I didn't read where he says, um, we shouldn't overload a frail female human being with all our expectations about the universal power of mother-child love, you know, that it's impossible for people to live up to that. And um, so anyway, it's a rich subject. Let me come back to your question about Maya, which I still haven't thought enough about, but let me just work with the edges of it for a moment. Um, yeah, this is what I can say. Um, there is an extraordinary man named Henri Corbin, who was a uh, French uh, student of um, Islamic mysticism. And uh, um, he and... Uh, so Corbin understood that in Islamic mysticism, in Ibn Arabi, the greatest Sufi mystic and others, that the imaginal realm 
we think of imagination as just this psychological phenomenon. But for the Sufi mystics, and for that matter, others in, in the Abrahamic faiths, the imaginal realm was where our prayers and wishes for contact with the eternal were met by messengers coming down from the eternal. So it was actually a very real, powerful thing. Now, Maya is usually translated as the dance of illusion, right? But imagine that you were to translate it as the dance of the imaginal. Imagine that you were to say that Maya can take many forms, but perhaps its highest form is that it's the dance of the place where the universal divine comes down and meets us. And um, so I'd have to think about it more, but that's the place my thought goes. One more question or so? We're good, huh? Well, thank you all for coming, and I really love being here with you. You've been listening to a TNS talk with Michael Lerner at the San Francisco Integral Yoga Institute. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.